Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon. My name is Angela Saylor, and I'm the Vice President of the Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our President Kay Coles James, welcome to our first Principal Town Hall series. You know, this past year, our history and founding principles have been questioned, doubted, and challenged. Others have sought to dangerously distort our American heritage and to fundamentally change it. But during this time of crisis, your Heritage Foundation has produced the first Principles Town Hall webinar series to speak into this moment, offering participants the educational tools to give children an honest understanding of our history and to help them appreciate America's political and cultural achievements. President Ronald Reagan famously stated that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction and preserving our liberties requires knowledge of our origins. We are delighted that you are joining us for part two of our Parent Town Hall series, Winning Freedom, in which Dr. Joseph Lacante will explain how exceptional the American Revolution was in world history and why it could easily have collapsed into tyranny like the French Revolution. Joining Joe will be an expert panel to discuss the importance of teaching America's founding principles in civics education and cultivating an informed community of involved parents offer the best possible roadmap to a flourishing civil society for all Americans. Dr. Joe Lacante, Director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies for Heritage's Bulner Institute, is our leading scholar on John Locke, He's also a former associate professor of history at the King's College in New York City and author of the New York Times bestseller, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism. As we welcome Dr. Joe Lacante, we encourage you to send questions throughout the event as we will have an opportunity to respond to them later in the program. Joe? Over to you. Well, thank you, Angela, for that uh, very gracious introduction. Thank you all for joining us today. We've got a terrific uh, program lined up for you. Before I introduce our all-star all panel, and they are an all-star panel, uh, let me just offer some historical perspective to kind of remind us what it is that we're fighting to preserve, what's under attack, what we're fighting to preserve. So imagine a group of revolutionaries tired of tyranny, hungry for liberty, and ready to throw off the chains of political oppression. They're prepared to risk everything for freedom. They want an end to absolute monarchy. What they want is a republic, a republic, a democratic form of government based on we the people. So they launched their revolution for freedom and to the astonishment of the world, they're successful. They topple the old regime. They defeat the king and his army. They write a new constitution but there's no sign of the dawn of universal bliss because once this revolution gets going, the champagne stops flowing. Something goes terribly wrong with this revolution. 
Instead of delivering liberty, equality, and fraternity, it produces new forms of oppression, injustice, human misery. Instead of a quest for enlightenment, it cracks down on free speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. Instead of democracy and the rule of law, we get mob rule and the reign of terror. I'm talking, of course, about the French Revolution, which began July 14, 1789, Bastille Day, that is Independence Day for the French. By the way, you know, if you're an American, July 14th is really the best day to be dining at a French restaurant because for once, <laughs> the French show waiters will be nice to you. But put that aside, the French Revolution began with a rage against absolute power. It ended with a government powerless to govern. It ended with a man on horseback, a dictator for life. There were two revolutions for freedom in the 18th century, uh, ladies and gentlemen. The one that began in Paris, yes, it collapsed into tyranny. But another revolution for freedom was launched here in Philadelphia in 1776. It began with these immortal words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Here, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in history, a political revolution declares the natural equality and natural rights of every human being universal rights that can't be taken away because these rights come from the hand of God. Was the American Revolution a radical event or a conservative uh, event? Well, think about it. Most of the American colonists, they're from England. And in the rebelling against the crown, they're claiming their chartered rights as Englishmen. They already are among the freest people in the world. They have the protections of the Magna Carta, which said that no political leader was above the law. They have the English Bill of Rights established during the Glorious Revolution of William and Mary. They have local self-governing assemblies, the town hall. And they also have the writings of the English philosopher John Locke. John Locke, virtually all of the ideas, some of them pretty radical, you have to say, that launched the American Revolution can be found in Locke's two treatises of government published 1689, the concepts of human equality, freedom, natural rights, the responsibility of government to protect these rights, and the right to revolution. If government tramples our rights, it's all there in Locke's two treatises. Well, was the American Revolution radical or conservative? Maybe it was both. Maybe it was both. The question now is, why did the American Revolution succeed where the French Revolution failed? Part of the answer can be found here, yes, in this book. Unlike the French, the Americans drew strength from the teachings of the Bible. Think about it. The narrative arc of scripture, the story of God rescuing the Jews from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the freedom of the promised land there in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, the story of Jesus rescuing his people from the slavery of sin and the fear of death. For the American revolutionaries, the Bible, it was the freedom book the Freedom Book. Next to the Declaration and the Constitution, the Bible might be called America's third founding document. 
And unlike in France, the American Revolution, it was backed up by the nation's clergy from all denominations. Take the Reverend John Witherspoon, one of the 56 signers of the Declaration. He lost a son in the Revolutionary War. He delivered assistance to General Washington. John Adams called him as high a son of liberty as any man in America. Witherspoon personified this powerful bond between faith and freedom that characterized the American Revolution. So the Americans, you know, they've got a lot going for them. They don't tear down everything that came before, like the French. They claim their political inheritance from Great Britain and its ancient constitution. They have the support of the Christian churches. Well, what about the elephant in the room? What about the elephant in the room? What about the existence of slavery in the American colonies? The English author Samuel Johnson pointed out the hypocrisy of the American revolutionaries, many of whom, of course, own slaves. How is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty, he wrote, among the drivers of Negroes? I think many colonial Americans had a guilty conscience about slavery, a guilty conscience. Patrick Henry, confessing his own guilt and hypocrisy, said that he looked forward to the time when an opportunity will be offered to abolish this lamentable evil. Here's the point. The American Revolution, it creates that opportunity because the Declaration proclaimed for the first time that a nation was coming into existence as the sworn enemy of human slavery, the enemy of human slavery. The revolution puts the institution of slavery on notice all over the world. Its days are gonna be numbered. Until recently, friends, we used to know these facts. We used to know them. Abraham Lincoln knew them. He said he never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. Yes, Lincoln, the great emancipator. Why did the American Revolution succeed? It succeeded because at the moment of its birth, it brought together the right ideas, the right institutions, and the right kinds of people to lead them. What kind of men and women did this revolution produce? Well, there was no campaign to brutally silence dissent. There was no assault on the Christian churches or the teachings of the Bible. There was no guillotine. There was not a Robespierre among them. Their man on horseback was not a Napoleon. It was a Washington, a Washington. The man who resigned his military commission to an elected assembly. He resigned it obediently, willingly, for the sake of the Republic. What kind of men and women did this revolution produce? Listen to the words of Abigail Adams, wife of John Adams, writing to her son, John Quincy, during the war. Abigail was trying to persuade her son to get on a boat, cross the Atlantic, and join his father in France to help the cause of freedom. John Quincy doesn't want to go. He'd rather go to Harvard, to college. His mother has a different sense of his obligations. Here's a piece of what she wrote him. These are the times in which a genius would wish to live. It is not in the still calm of life that great characters are formed. The habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties, she says, contending with difficulties. Great necessities call out great virtues and form the character of the hero and the statesman. Now, I put the question to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you got a letter like that from your mother, <laughs> what would you do? You'd get on the boat. You know you would, you get on that boat. The character of the hero and the statesman is forged in the fires of a great contest, a great difficulty in the crucible of war. 
and war has come upon them. With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest political revolution for human freedom in the history of the world has begun. Well, thanks for listening to that. Let me introduce our all-star panel. Someday I'll get to be on an all-star panel. Let me invite the panel to join us now online. I at least get to moderate them. So join us now online, panel, if you would. And I'll introduce them briefly. You've got the fuller bi biographies are available. There we go. Everybody's online there. Great. Uh, Bill Maddox, William Maddox, director of the J. Stanley Marshall Center for Educational Options at the James Madison Institute. Uh, Bill works with policymakers, educators, parents to promote reforms to make it possible for all K-12 students to obtain a high quality education. I love that idea. Charlotte McGuire, vice president uh, for the Ohio State Board of Education. She and her husband, Arthur, launched the, the Excel after school program uh, that engages parents to help elementary students improve school achievement and attendance. If that's not doing the Lord's work, I don't know what is. <laughs> and Daryl Owens, graduate from Grove City, worked for 15 years in the healthcare industry. Daryl and his wife Dawn are parents to Ryland, age nine, Cafe, age 13, based in Minneapolis. Welcome all to this table. Uh, I've got a few questions here uh, coming in. Uh, let me just throw it open to Daryl here first, but anybody really can answer this kind of opening question as well. Uh, Daryl, what brought you to the point? This is a question I, I always like to ask people who get involved in, in, in great causes like this. What brought you to the point that you decided to speak with the heads uh, of the school where your children attend? And what was the response then uh, from, those, uh, from those officials? What, what dragged you into this, into this discussion, Daryl, if you could? Sure. Um. We, we moved our kids uh, from uh, one school, uh, a different school, uh, to two Catholic schools at the beginning of this school year. So that would have been, what, August of 2020. And um, grateful that they are uh, in school all day, every day, uh, albeit with masks and all that stuff, but they're there. Um, we moved them because we started to be concerned um, about, <laughs> Uh, things that were being taught and not being taught um, at the prior institution. Um, but I have to say, um, it, with respect to how history was or wasn't being taught in the prior institution, uh, Dawn and I really felt like we could deal with that at home. Uh, we could supplement uh, uh, and, and correct <laughs> uh, certain um, uh, information uh, at home. And, and we were doing that. And we, I, I, I think we were su pretty successful. However, when uh, the, the uh, issues of race uh, and critical race theory um, started to creep in to the um, kind of the everyday discussions in the classrooms, um, uh, into chapel, um, <laughs> things like that, we decided, uh, you know, the writing's on the wall here, we're going to move our kids to uh, different schools. And it was certainly the right move for us. However, um, I was also encouraged over and over and over again to not assume that all is well in your child's classroom and all is well with uh, uh, the, the curriculum at your children's school. So, um, and I have to say, I was, I, I was under that assumption. 
Um, I then decided one day, uh, probably after uh, reading something or, or, or listening to a lecture or something like that, to reach out to the heads of school to say, hey, what is, how are you handling all of this information and all the, the push yeah. to, to integrate uh, the 1619 yeah. project, et cetera, et cetera, into the curriculum? And I got two different answers. Um, one uh, from 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 one head of school. Thank you for your call. This is the best call I've gotten all day because I did give them my opinion of those uh, things. It's the best call I've gotten all day. Thank you so much. Don't worry about it. As long as I'm the head of school, that's never going to happen here. The other one, I'm uh, was was very interested in getting information. Very um, willing to consider all points of view and perspectives. Um, so that gave me cause for concern, um, and I have maintained contact with that particular head of school. Uh, okay. I do send her information from time to time, um, but yeah, it's our concern because our our children are, uh, you know, they need to know who they are beyond the color of their skin. So yes, yes, thank you for that, Daryl. That's terrific. Maybe Charlotte, over to you. Uh, a similar but slightly different question. You're a vice president over there, the Ohio State Board of Education. What have you learned? What what would you as, you, as we're talking to this audience here, we've got who's who've tuned in, the parents especially. Uh, what have you learned has really encouraged you about the challenges that are that are out there in your own role and the capacity to make a difference, Charlotte? Well, I just got off a state school board meeting on Tuesday, and I made under new business a conscionable appeal that everyone on our 19-member board is in the, one of the largest in the nation need to learn out for themselves what critical race theory is about. I have been receiving letters from parents all over the state of Ohio. They're concerned about what their children are being taught. Uh, some of their local boards are engaging, some are not. So the question becomes, parents, hold us accountable. Hold your local school board accountable. Uh, we are a local control state, so a lot of education determination happens in the local district. But we are the resource and the set up the model curriculum on our website. So say, for example, 1619 Project showed up on our website. The perception is that we support this, which we were clueless about. We don't even know how it got on the website. So that began to make us as policymakers, well, for the school board, to find out why. Uh, the reason I care is because ideals have consequences. And inconsistent ideals means inconsistent people. And the parent is the first foundational support for education. And parents, I've discovered, I have 44 districts in my territory besides across the state. I find out a lot of them are clueless until it is too late. Wow, wow, wow. Charlotte, I'm gonna come back to you and unpack that a little bit, but I'm gonna give Bill a chance here. Bill, um, we're pretty good about, I think, good uh, in our crowd about identifying what the threats are, the problems out there, whether it's a 1619 project, critical race theory, et cetera. Um, what else more is needed though, in terms of the response of concerned parents who really want an accurate a portrayal of our history, something that doesn't divide us. It's true, true to our history, but doesn't divide us. What else, what more do we need here, Bill? Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's obvious that we need to be pushing back against um, destructive narratives that um, distort the past and that um, 
uh, contribute to uh, cultural division today. But I don't think that a critique alone is enough. I really do believe that we need to be offering, in many ways, a counter narrative, a true narrative, one that, in my mind, embraces the idea of constructive patriotism. And, and in that, I think you can see, uh, oftentimes, the, uh, um, those that are advancing the narratives that are ascendant today, that are causing so much trouble and division, um, often like to kind of uh, portray the, the, the debate as um, we're here to give you an honest view of history as opposed to a sugar-coated view that you would get traditionally or from the other side or whatever it may be. And I think that what we need to do is to not fall into the trap of letting them characterize um, our point of view in those ways and that offering examples from history of people who had often blistering critiques, but presented those in the context of embracing our founding principles and overarching values and ideals is important. And in my mind, two of the best examples of this are Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King uh, Jr. If you look at uh, Frederick Douglass's, you know, what to the slave is the 4th of July speech, it is a blistering critique of slavery but it is also a surprisingly strong and compelling defense of our nation's ideals and a basically an exhortation to his audience to say, hey, we all embrace these ideals, let's do a better job of living up to them. And you can see the same yeah. thing with Martin Luther King in his uh, I Have a Dream speech where he yeah. speaks to the declaration as a promissory note that needs to be redeemed in neither case are they attacking our foundations or suggesting that America is irredeemable, but simply that we have work to do. And as lovers of this country, we need to get about that work to live up to the ideals that we all share. And that sort of constructive view of patriotism, rather than one that is critical, that seeks to tear down, that seeks to divide, is I think a narrative that Americans will embrace. I think it is honest and true, and it gives yes. a complete picture to our um, children of how they should see this country. Yeah, thank you for that, Bill. That's just terrific. And I, I should just say, uh, at the risk of uh, shameless self-promotion here, at the Heritage Foundation, other people are working on this as well, of course, but at Heritage, we are trying to produce that kind of material, uh, a little mini film series we're working on right now to make available to parents and others. But I want to take it back to Charlotte and then over to Daryl again. And Charlotte, take this question wherever you like. I got to imagine there, you being on the Ohio State Board of Education, that you've got some uh, uh, people there, colleagues, who don't agree with you, who don't agree with your positions, and maybe are a little uh, astounded that you're taking the positions that you're taking. I'm just kind of curious to know how you interact with them and where where you've been able to make some progress in headway. What kind of arguments and discussions you have that seem to maybe make the lights go on, the scales fall from the eyes, a Damascus moment, something. You tell us. Well, first of all, I speak the truth in love. And one of the things I demand of all my colleagues on the board is that you know for yourself. I always tell my children there are three sides to a story, your side, my side, and then the truth. And we need to ascertain what is the truth in, in this case. Parents need a simple message. Um, even in critical race theory, one of the uh, tenets is knowledge is socially constructed. That's not true. 
Uh, so they want to put away science and reason, but you want to use science for masking the children, but you don't want to use science when it comes to educating the children. So my, my concern is that we need a simple message that every parent uh, can embrace, every parent can talk, they need to hold their local school boards accountable, so they need to be educated. And I don't know how you do that in a couple of pages, guys, but we need a message to push back. Um, and as far as we say school board, I'm willing to risk all. Uh, there are people there for what I, the legal term is self-enrichment. But if you're truly there for your students, if you're truly there for the future of your state or the future of this country, you have to do what is right at any cost. Yes. You know, Charlotte, it's making me think what you just said. Uh, maybe we need a little more collaboration with you in, in crafting that kind of response based on your own experience and what's effective, kind of crafting that two-page, three-page document. That's maybe something to think about uh, down the road here. Not too that's far down. So, oh, I'm sorry. And that's no, so no. important. We just had our state associations of president of the school board uh, be a victim of cancel culture. He resigned. He had just been appointed or elected wow. as the president of the Ohio School Board Association. But he wanted to do the right thing. And he's part of a team I'm working with uh, to get information into the hands of parents. They are the taxpayers. They are the frontline defense for their children, but they've got to know what's going on. Words have consequences. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, we just considered a resolution relating to funding. The overall uh, arching preamble said public schools being foundational to democracy. I yes. saw three red flags immediately because part of the critical race theory is that uh, either you're re democracy, but it's not about republic. We are a republic, government for, of, and by the people and the yes. people are the parents. Yes, that's an excellent point, Charlotte. I don't think we can emphasize it enough that the actual power that people have, that ordinary parents have in their hands, it reminds me of that moment uh, in, in Poland, in the Solidarity Movement, when John Paul II visited Poland, a Catholic pope visiting a Catholic communist country, and they're turning out by the millions to see him, to hear him speak. And one of the... Uh, uh, people in the crowd later said, we realized, finally realized that we, the people, we have the power. We have the power. We're the majority and they're the minority. The communist leaders wonder if we need that kind of awakening uh, somehow about the power we have. Go ahead, Charlie. You want to quickly respond? Doctor, uh, one of the words we got to be very careful of is equity. Yeah. It's part of the, um, what I call cultural uh critical race theory framework when you talk about equity yeah. inclusion yeah. Uh, versus equality yeah yeah i think we'll come back to that point before we're done it's a great one over to you daryl you know you're you're a parent you've got uh, you've got a couple of kids in school uh, one of the questions i'm sure some parents are wondering is how do you talk to your to your children about this uh, uh and you know not confusing them but help them to understand what's coming in, what can be trusted, what can't be trusted. It's got to be a difficult negotiation. Daryl, can you talk to us about that? Uh, I'm very honest. We're very honest with them. Uh, my mother uh, was very honest with me. 
uh, when I was growing up about race and about any, anything she could think of, um, many other issues too, sometimes too honest, I would say. Um, but I appreciate that uh, now being an adult and a father of two children. So we are very honest with them. Um, we, all, we, we, we emphasize with them that everyone doesn't think the way we do. In fact, uh, where we live, most people don't, at least not that we encounter. So, um, you know, to Ms. McGuire's point, uh, encouraging them to speak the truth in love, speak their, say their opinion in a, in a respectful way. Um, so we encourage them to do that. We also tell them if you have questions about what somebody says at school, what a teacher says at school, please, please ask us. And I, we ask them. So we are probably, uh, we, are probe, we are probing parents. We are constantly asking them, you know, what did you learn in school today? Oh, well, what did, you know, what did Joey say about such and such? Hey, what did they say about the protests that are happening? Um, so we, we talk to them about what, what the current issues are, and we, we really don't sugarcoat anything. Both of them are um, mature uh, in that way. They can handle it. Uh, if they don't get it, they'll, they'll ask us. And if they don't want to hear any more, they tell us, yeah, 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 Dad, I got it. <laughs> so, I would say honesty has been our, our friend. That's a that's a terrific terrific strategy. It seems to me, honestly. Bill, back over to you here. Um, I, the James Madison uh, Institute, you have developed uh, some supplemental civic education programs. Do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about that? I think it's going to be probably of interest to a lot of the people in our audience right now. I don't want to miss that. Go ahead. Yeah. So we do a uh, supplemental curriculum that we release every September called Celebrate Freedom that goes out during Celebrate Freedom Week and uh, unpacks that passage that you uh, cited earlier from the Declaration of Independence, giving students kind of an understanding of that. And then throughout the year, do a number of other uh, programs and activities, often in conjunction with other institutions and programs like Boys State, Girls State, whatnot, providing speakers and the like. But one of my favorite things that we do is a naturalization ceremony field trip that we do with students every year where we take them to go and see a naturalization ceremony to interact with some of the new citizens. Um, and before they go, we have them take the quiz that is required of um, those who want to become naturalized citizens just to see what the questions are and whether or not they'd be able to answer them. And almost without fail, whenever we do this, the students come away with a profound respect for these um, individuals who have cared enough about becoming Americans to um, uh, go through the process, to do it you know, legally, to answer the questions and all the rest. That many of them, some in some ways, um, kind of recognize their own, um, uh, uh, I guess, ingratitude may be the right word, I don't know just it, how how many things that we kind of take for granted and don't even pause to reflect on how blessed we are as Americans to enjoy many of the privileges that we do as citizens of this country. Yes. One of the things that going forward we're, we're planning to do that I think is going to be really interesting is to ask students whether they think there ought to be some sort of rite of passage um, like uh, you see in religious um, groups sometimes, uh, the, the confirmation process or the bar mitzvah process where people who are born into a community are expected to embrace the ideas and values of that community in some way. And I'm not advocating for that when it comes to U.S. citizenship, but there is a sense in which I think a lot of young people 
never really stop, pause, reflect, and and in some way go about the process of embracing what it distinctly means to be American and 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 the ideals that are, are represented yes. uh, by our country. Yes, thank you, Bill, for that. That's terrific stuff. And I want to get more on on uh, on resources that are out there. But Charlotte, back to you here for a minute. It, it seems to many of us that the radical stuff that has been going on at the, at the college level, you know, UC Berkeley, back in the 60s and early 70s, they were chanting in Berkeley, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, right? And so uh, just teaching Western civilization, American history, it's become so problematic at the college level. But now we're seeing this kind of radicalism really for the first time in, in public education, Charlotte. And I guess I want to give you another opportunity to unpack this a little bit more about what what our audience, our parents, need to be aware of, the the big the big th the the warning signs, the things to really be careful of, and then strategically what they can do. Just unpack it a little bit more for us. What you given your experience over there? Well, I think Ms. Owens is doing the right thing. The thing parents have to do is active listening. They've got to listen to understand and validate what's going on in the school you've got to keep your children i tell my daughter keep your children talking because that will be an indication if you don't know what may be going on especially words like equity or democracy or the intersectionality you know there are key buzzwords that parents yeah. need to listen for we had a, a woman at the board meeting this past Tuesday. She gave such a compelling story how her daughter was referred by a school psychologist to a gender clinic without her knowledge and what happened. And so we got to be careful even in uh, the current administration's desire to teach civic activism, so to speak, that what we're seeing on college campuses does not start happening in pre-K through 12th grade. As a matter of fact, you know, there's telling students in some districts in Ohio, uh, pick a topic you stand for, write your senator. We've had walkouts. And in some cases, the parents don't know about it. When the school's uh, teaching conflicts with your family values, that's yeah. a big red flag. Yeah, that's terrific. We got a question in the queue here, kind of on this point. Uh, what steps do you recommend taking to find out if critical race theory and the 1619 project have been adopted? What steps do you recommend taking to find out they've adopted and have become part of the school <coughs> curriculum? And I'll throw it open to anybody over there. Well, I, I tell all my parents, first of all, to bridge the gap between the home and the school. Know your children's teacher. I call them parents of purpose. Uh, ask questions. If nothing else, ask the school principal. Uh, every school has a curriculum director. What's being taught? You know, you've got to ask questions in such a way you get them talking, so to speak. <laughs> and oh, again, oh. talk, keep notes. And then I also encourage them to talk to the superintendent. And then I ask them to share it with other parents. They need to have dialogue in their communities because parents need to be educated. Uh, they need to be activated and mobilized to yeah. go to hold their elected local school boards accountable. Uh, Daryl, let's pick up that point. Thank you for that, Charlotte. Let's pick up that point about 
working together maybe with other parents because I can even imagine if you're a parent out there, you can sometimes think I'm, I'm in this thing on my own. Who else feels the same way when in fact they may well be part of a silent majority? What's been your experience there, Daryl, in working uh, with other parents? Um, <clears throat> well, I would say that there are, that many parents are afraid. Mm -hmm. um, they, they don't want to speak up. They don't want to cause controversy. Yeah not because necessarily it will reflect on them, but because of the impact it could potentially have on their children um, and how their children may be treated by others or other people's parents or whatever. So um, I volunteer a lot uh, at my son's school, especially, unfortunately, at my daughter's school. Parents are, uh, I always call it locked out because of COVID, where there are no volunteer opportunities there. Um, however, I do stand outside, so. Um, but at my son's school, I volunteer. We serve lunch um, sometimes, and so you get to talk to other parents there. Um, and I would say uh, engaging them on a very personal, practical uh, level has been the best for me. So I'm, I'm not calling parents and saying, hey, you know, I called the head of school and I told them such and such. No. I want to rub shoulders with them, rub elbows with them in a setting where we're, you know, pulling in the same direction, serving lunch or whatever. And yeah those topics come up. So that seems I, like a crucial. I'm sorry, go ahead, Daryl. I, I think being present in school as much as you possibly can, wow. especially yeah. in wow. these times, is so important because those hallway conversations, yeah. you're going you're gonna to hear what's coming up then, and you can deal yeah. with it in a moment. Yeah, communicating your investment in the school for the sake of your kids and, and the kids around them. I mean, I don't have children. Uh, uh, but I can easily imagine, not even not being a parent, I can easily imagine how it, it would be a, a, an anxious thing for a parent to approach a high school teacher or administrator. The fear would be, now my student's going to be marked out as the child of the troublemaker. And then maybe there's a different attitude toward the child. Just unconsciously, you could, you could imagine that anxiety. You're nodding over there, Daryl. I mean, what, what do you think about that? How do you well, that has, so <clears throat> I do have a... Uh... A, uh, a parent slash colleague uh, at my daughter's school where that has happened to her. Yeah. So her, her, her daughter is the parent of the troublemaker. Um, it, it is what it is. Um, we, you do it anyway because that's the right thing to do. Um, you do uh, have to be careful though, I would say, to again, be respectful, to speak the truth in love. This is not about criticizing for the sake of criticizing and getting your own way. Um, you know, this sure. is for the sake of uh, you know, having our children grow up to be who God created them to be. Um, it's not about yes. your belief versus my belief. It's about our belief um, and about what's right and yes. what's wrong. Yes. Thank you for that, Daryl. And uh, maybe back over to Bill and then over to Charlotte. Bill, uh, uh, on this point and unpacking it a bit more, the challenges that these, that these parents face what would you also recommend? I think there are probably people really hungry for resources, and anybody can weigh in on this, the resources that we need to push back against the madness. The way you uh, 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 oppose bad books is with good books, right? Mm -hmm. Bad thinking with good thinking. Uh, and in, in your travels and in your work, Bill, what else would you maybe put on the table? We can certainly bring that uh, later on and, and make it available uh, to this audience uh, on our website and all, but what would you put on the table? So. One of the things that I would do just to underscore this uh, point about speaking the truth in love is to encourage parents not to assume the worst about those that they will be interacting with, because 
one of the things that I have found in going to a lot of teacher conferences and sharing with them the resources that we have available is that many of the people that are teaching in social studies departments are actually sympathetic to the concerns that we have, do want to do a, a, a faithful job of presenting um, our history and uh, civics in an accurate way. So don't assume the worst. Yes, there are problems. Um, don't, you know, don't be naive, but also don't assume the worst about people because you might find if you go about things in a respectful manner that you have allies within the system among the faculty and whatnot who can help advance these um, concerns if you uh, express them in an appropriate manner. So that, that would be one thing that I would offer uh, that underscores some of the points earlier. Excellent. Charlotte, you're, you're getting ready to weigh in there on, on this or other points. Let me give you a chance. Go ahead. I got some other questions, but go ahead, weigh in. Well, uh, Bill is absolutely correct. Relationships matter. And relationships, um, I always even tell my districts, um, I'm seeing a culture of fear even among teachers who are caring and sympathetic to the parents, and they are even afraid to speak up, especially wow. if it goes against administration. So build good relationships, bridge the gap between the home and the school. Uh, re remember parents, you are the leader. You are the leader. I don't care what they say. And some schools make it very difficult. Their customer service uh, relations is leaves a lot to be desired. As a matter of fact, some parents are even intimidated to even engage with the uh, schools. Yes. So yes. I even tell the superintendents, you know, parents, we value partnership as a priority to learning. And the key partner is the parent. And when yes. you start kicking parents to the side, then you become suspect about what you're doing inside that building. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm going to have Daryl maybe pick that up again too, but there's a question in the queue which relates to this. Since parents have more to lose in these types of discussions, older people in the community need to help out. They're taxpayers too. Have you seen this type of activity? And I guess what they're talking about is people whose kids are grown, but they're there, they're still invested in the community. Can we bring them on board? Uh, in these efforts to challenge what's happening in the schools, that's that that's pretty rotten. Anybody have any thoughts, stories about that? Oh, I, I, I'm absolutely because I'm a grandmother, so I talk <laughs> to all grandmothers. You know, it's not about your children; it's about the next generation. It's about your community. It's about your state. And uh, our strategic plan branding is each child our future, and we want to be sure that we equip children with the knowledge and skills for their aspirations, that they be challenged and prepared for future success. Yes. So not only the, the grandparents, you need to talk to business leaders that have children. You need to talk, oh, and definitely I'm going to churches, you know, where uh, values are established. You need to go to have a dialogue with the Sunday school or, or whatever, summer camps. The key is the community is responsible and all of us are responsible for the future of our local community and our local state. So yes, everybody should be engaged, but the key is getting everybody the understanding and being on the same page and, yeah. you know, keep, and I tell everybody, keep the bottom line, the students. Don't bring your personal perspective in, don't bring the politics in. 
Is this good for our children? Yes. Terrific, Charlotte. I want to give Daryl a chance to jump in here, but you said uh, you mentioned that you're a grandmother. Uh, you're too young to be a grandmother. I thought you were a truth teller. Come on now. You're not a grandmother. <laughs> but thank you for that. Grandmother. Uh, but Daryl, uh, maybe on this point, this um, this networking with people in the community, and maybe just a little bit more on your end and what you've seen there, potentially you've seen there. Go ahead. I would say, well, first of all, uh, my first thought is it's been difficult during COVID to network with anybody. Um, and we were new to these particular schools um, this year. So that, you know, added a, another layer of uh, difficulty. But um, given the, the way in which at least one school approached uh, the ability to be involved, um, again, I, <clears throat> I volunteer for everything. I volunteer for things where there is no volunteer spot. Um, uh, my son is like, oh my gosh, dad, you're always here. What are you doing? Why are you here? Um, wow. I, I, uh, so I, I think, again, it is in that way, I've been able to interact with uh, teachers because it's, you know, it's a Catholic school, limited resources. So teachers wear two, three hats sometimes, uh, coaches for sure. Um, it's easy to get into a conversation uh, and understand kind of where their head is at. And by doing so, you can kind of understand, all right, where that particular department's head is at, yes. where yes. the administration's head is at. Um, yes. I have not yet, though, and I think it's a great idea, tried the approach of, uh, you know, getting getting grandparents involved. I shudder to think what my what my dad would do if he was involved there. It might, I, I don't know. I'd have to leave. Let me, Go, let me add in. one thing um, uh, to in, this, and, and that's just to say that um, people of all ages, in addition to fighting on this question surrounding curriculum content and what is taught in the classroom, um, also need to be fighting for school choice. Because one of the things that we've seen in Florida that I think has greatly empowered parents who are finding their local public school resistant to some of their um, legitimate inquiry and request for help and 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 address on some of these things is that when parents can leave when they can take students to another school it usually means that that schools become more responsive to them and i've seen this from our, our own experience um we lived for a time in virginia before moving to florida and virginia had far less school choice a, a more captive audience if you will and I think our local public schools were far less responsive to parents than the public schools that we found here in Florida. So yeah. while obviously we care about what everyone is being taught in the classroom and need to be focused on this fight surrounding civics education and U.S. history, we also need to be working at the same time to advance um, a broad array of options so that parents have somewhere to go if they aren't satisfied with what the local public school is teaching. Excellent point, uh, Bill, and our time is wrapping up here, but I want to give Charlotte and, and Daryl just a chance as well, something that I that hasn't been asked that you really want to communicate here for this audience uh, about this issue, what makes you hopeful, what we need to know. The floor is open. Uh, Daryl, take it, and we'll, we'll wrap up with Charlotte. Go ahead, Daryl. Um, for me, I think what makes me hopeful is that uh, I have learned that there are other parents out there that think the way I do. Um, I have learned that there are there are resources out there for parents, um, and I can I can pr uh, provide the ones that I know of as well. 
um, there are resources out there for us to use because I agree that arming ourselves with knowledge is kind of the first step. I can't imagine two years ago having a conversation with any school administrator about critical race theory. I would have had no idea what I was talking about. And I would have yeah. thought, that doesn't quite sound right to me, but I, I can't really articulate why. Um, so I, I think that what makes me hopeful is it, I honestly feel like there's a growing uh, tide of opposition to it, at least making itself known. Excellent, excellent. Uh, Charlotte, give me the last word. The last word is uh, hope is the expectation of good. And I expect good to come out of this because we have woke citizen parents. And woke in this case only means, and this is an inspiration I've, I've gotten about uh, two months ago and I've been sharing it everywhere I go, is wisdom overcomes known evil. What you don't know can destroy you or cause you to perish. So we are having woke citizen parents that are, they, they will use wisdom. They're getting, I mean, they're getting educated from everywhere and they will be overcomers because they gonna know the evil and how to confront it. Wow. Wow, I can't improve on that. Charlotte, thank you so much for that. Thank you for this all-star panel. Uh, and the great investment of time. Thank you for everything you're doing out there. Thank you for the audience for joining us today. It's been great to have you. If you've got more questions, you can send them our way and we'll respond immediately following the event. You're going to get a survey that we hope you'll fill out. Uh, we get some of your ideas uh, about how to bring uh, some of this knowledge and information into the public square. We'd love to see your ideas about that. To see the events we have coming up, check out uh, heritage.org forward slash events. And again, thank you, everybody. Have a terrific God-blessed day. Good to be with you.